The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Frank Latica, Olin and Angela, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. My name is Justin Robert Young, and this is the last episode in our main feed until election day. Oh my word. We're going to go out in style though. We are. We are. Uh, Not only do we have your mailbag, which we always do on Fridays. I'm also going to give you something that will uh, hopefully be fun on election night. As many of you know, uh, I was raised by a degenerate gambler. I have always been fascinated by point spreads and over-unders. And so, I will be calculating the official PX3 Gambler's Guide to Election Night. We're going to do a final point spread for the popular vote, for the Electoral College. Might even get into some states. You'll find out. And we are going to welcome a a, a guest for whom I have read for a very long time. Indeed, uh, uh, he's somebody that that I think probably doesn't get enough credit for for sort of bringing some of the energy of the aughts blog revolution to much higher pedestals, uh, namely the Washington Post and CNN. His name is Chris Saliza, the writer of The Fix. Co-host of the Tony Kornheiser Show for the loyal littles listening. He joins us, talks about 2020, and because I know you guys love your your, your pedantic journalism conversation, I have an actual on television who used to write at a newspaper source that is going to give you exactly what I've been saying in terms of the hard-coded media rivalry, nay, hatred between print journalists and TV journalists as somebody who went from one to the other. But first! No, Lisa. The only monster here is the gambling monster that has enslaved your mother. I call him Gamblor, and it's time to snatch your mother from his neon claws! Fun fact. If you go to Las Vegas and you find a Simpsons-themed slot machine. And if you've never been to Vegas, every slot machine is themed in some way. There's Lord of the Rings slot machines. There's uh, Wizard of Oz. Everything has a theme. And so it was only natural that at some point the Simpsons uh, would have their own themed slot machine. And it's really fun. And if you're a Simpsons fan, you'll, you'll, you'll have a good time pouring money into it. Maybe you get some back. But you will not see any mention or appearance by Marge Simpson. And the reason why is because canonically within the Simpsons universe, Marge has a gambling problem. 
And so they don't want to put the gambling addict on the machine that might make you think of... Well, I don't know whether or not it was like a... a might make you think of gambling addiction or whatever. Or if it's some licensing or gaming thing. But, uh... But there we go. That's a little fun fact for you. Now let's get in some... Get into some gambling. Okay, so... Uh, uh, for those of you who are not degenerates, let me explain a few things to you. Sports betting, by and large, is done two ways. Either by odds, saying, okay, well, you have to, I have, I have to pay up front $200 to win $100 on a favorite, right? So you are risking more capital so you can get something back if the outcome is likely to happen. Or, conversely, you would risk little uh, on, on an upset. And then if the upset comes in, you get paid more. Or by point spread. And that's what we're going to be doing today. You might be aware as gambling has become more and more mainstream. If you happen to be, even if you're not a sports fan, you happen to be at a... I mean, it used to be sports bars. Uh, I don't know if those still exist somewhere in the country, but you're sitting there and you're eating your lunch and you look up and maybe on the crawl, you'll see Pittsburgh versus Baltimore, Baltimore minus three. What minus three means is that for gamblers, if you want to take the Pittsburgh Steelers, you at the end of the game can add three points to the to, to the points that the Steelers actually scored. And if, by that addition, the Steelers would have won the game, you win your bet. In the professional gambling world, this is done so you can get action on both sides of the game. The ideal outcome for casinos is that 50% of the money comes on one side, 50% of the money comes in on the other side. And then by way of you know their operational fees, they continue to make money and they limit their they, they limit their ability to lose money if some gigantic outcome happens. But in our society, point spreads are very, very interesting because they tend to be a gauge on our public perception of things. If we believe that the Baltimore Ravens are going to win because they are at home and the teams are basically even, then the idea that they would be giving three points is understandable. If they lose, and then the next time the Steelers play the Ravens, you'd probably see the point spread in the other direction. And that is only marginally interesting in the world of football. But in the world of politics, I find it to be downright mesmerizing. Because we have spent four years building up to this moment. We have made our own expectations. We have picked and choosed the news stories for which we would fulfill our narrative. And for many, 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 many of you, including today to follow up on our, our episode on Wednesday, Texas has now uh, 
voted at 100% plus in early voting what they did in the entirety of their voting in 2016. So we have, in many ways, already said our piece. But by combining a few polls here, I am going to issue the official PX3 lines. So this way you can follow along on election night. Now, I want to speak specifically to everybody for whom has had their eyes glaze over because they don't care about gambling and this is very confusing to them. You don't have to bet on anything or even think about it on what you would bet. What I want you to do as we go forward is just think about where your expectations are. Do you think that that's a fair assumption? So as I say that Biden should win this state by X points, do you believe if you had $5 in your pocket that you would put it down on either side of the line, that Biden will win by that amount or not win? It's just kind of a fun thought experiment. Normally, point spreads are calculated in some dingy basement in Las Vegas where a very, very, very dialed-in sports odds makers are tracking what kinds of betters there are out there and making the lines based on their own informed analysis. And I will do the same. But largely, I'm going to use real clear politics to get a sense of the polling aggregates. All right? So just to get us warmed up, let's go through some of the battleground states. Right now, Real Clear Politics average has Biden up one and a half in Florida. And we're going to keep that at one. All right. So so uh, Florida is Biden plus one. Pennsylvania, Biden plus three and a half, according to Real Clear Politics average. Let's swing over to Ohio. That is a pick em. So no point spread. That is, you just bet Biden or Trump. That's what that is. Let's go to Minnesota. This will be a fascinating one. Biden plus 4.5. Let's do that. But then you want to know what? We can also swing out of the battleground states and have a little bit more fun. Let's take a look at New York. The real clear politics average there is 28, and you want to know what? I'm going to bump it up to an even 30. So that is Biden minus 30 in New York. Do you believe that Donald Trump can come within 30 points of Joe Biden on election night? Let's pull it on over to the Golden State. California, where I am broadcasting from. That's another 30-point spread. So do you believe that Donald Trump can come within 30 points of Joe Biden in either New York or California. See, I told you, gambling's super, super fun. Now let's swing to the popular vote. So Hillary Clinton wound up winning the popular vote by about 2% last time. So let's bake that into the cake that Donald Trump is probably going to lose the popular vote. But 
the Real Clear Politics average has it currently at Biden plus 7.8. So that would mean that if we took that straight out, that by election night, when that's all said and done, whatever Trump got, if he lost by four, he would still win based on the point spread if we kept it at 7.8. But I'm not going to put it at 7.8. I think 7.8 is really, really, really high. And here's why. Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by three. And Bush beat Kerry by two. Now, There are precedents for these kinds of point spreads, these kind of victories, rather. Clinton beat George H.W. Bush by around six. He then shellacked Bob Dole by nine and a half. And of course, Al Gore narrowly within a point beat George W. Bush by the popular vote. And Obama beat McCain by about seven points. So, 7.8 isn't insane. It's not like we've never seen this before. But I I think it's, we'd get more action if it was a little closer. So I'm going to put this one at Biden minus five and a half. Five and a half. So that means that if you are betting Trump, you are betting that he will be within five and a half points of Joe Biden's final total, or he could win outright. If you are betting Biden, you are betting that he is going to win by more than five and a half. All right, let's swing on over to the Electoral College. Again, using the real clear politics average, and some of these are very tight and might even be different by the time that you listen to this. But if I just enter in all the latest numbers, Joe Biden dominates on a level that we have very rarely seen in recent years. A 345 electoral vote Squanch of Donald Trump's puny 193 electoral votes. So, so you could be tempted to go Biden minus 152 electoral votes. And that would be in line with Barack Obama's victory, he had 365 to McCain's 173. So that was that was that would be more impressive. It was a little closer against Mitt Romney, 332 to 206. But then of course Donald Trump beats Hillary Clinton 304 to 227. My guess is that we are going to be closer to a 2016 election than we are to those other elections because we are very deeply partisan. So I'm I'm inclined to not roll with the 152 
electoral vote spread here. Indeed, I'm going to put it a little bit closer. So let's do a little math here. I'm going to say that Florida is definitely going to go Trump's way, even though that is not what the polling says right now. It's a close Biden win based on the real clear politics average. I'm also going to say that Georgia is going to go Trump's way. And I'll say North Carolina goes Trump's way. So that, if that's the case, if if Trump is indeed as strong as, as we might expect in the Southeast and Biden is not able to pull off any wins there, that means this is still a Biden victory by way of carrying Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Minnesota. At that point, we are at Biden having 285 electoral votes and Trump having 253 electoral votes. That is a 32 electoral vote margin. But I almost feel like that's a little bit too conservative. Like it's because that that may or may not even come into play. That's really, 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 really tight. So you want to know what? I'm gonna flip Arizona blue. That is 296 for Biden, 242 for Trump. That is a 54. Electoral vote margin, and that will be our spread. Biden minus 54 electoral votes. So if you want to bet on Trump, you are getting 54 electoral votes at the very beginning of the night. And if you are betting on Biden, you are betting on the fact that he will win by more than that. So you are betting that he is going to win not only Virginia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, California, Oregon, and Washington, not to mention everybody in the Northeast, which is fairly solidly blue to begin with. But then he also flips a North Carolina, a Georgia, a Florida, or dare to dream for the Biden heads, Texas. So there we go. Biden minus 54 is what we're looking at. So just to recap, we got a pick them in Ohio. We got Florida as Biden minus one. We've got 30 point spreads each. Biden minus 30 in New York and California. We've got Biden minus five and a half in the popular vote. And we have Biden minus 54 in the Electoral College. Thems are the official PX3 point spreads for your election night. Politics. They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. You can always be a part of our show by writing into our mailbag, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Of course, we're on the cusp of big election. 
So we're going to begin our mailbag with an email about Scott Brown. Wow. If you're outside of Massachusetts, you might not even remember old Scott Brown. He drives a truck. He talks about how hot his daughter is. He's Scott Brown. Scott Brown is a Republican who won Ted Kennedy's special election Senate seat and uh, then lost to Elizabeth Warren. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren has now become a fixture. So wither, Scott. Scott is currently the U.S. ambassador to New Zealand, writes Matt. The Boston Globe obviously hates him and wrote this cheeky article. We will read the head or the, the lead here. Quote, think back to your July 4th celebration this year. Were you able to host a big barbecue in the burbs or join a bunch of friends on the Cape? Did it feel like the celebration of freedom you wanted? No? Well, then you probably don't want to hear about Scott Brown's holiday soiree. He hosted 1,700 guests at his Independence Day party this year. Drinks, massive spread of Kentucky Fried Chicken, rock music, handshakes, dancing, no social distancing, no masks, no need, no COVID-19. Gotta love a sassy reporter. Oh, so sassy. Patrick writes, I was catching up on your podcast last night and you were talking to Heaton about your impressions. You did yourself a disservice by not mentioning my spot on Dan Carlin quote voice. If you've never heard this podcast before, I have a very limited and bizarre subsection of impressions that I can do. Of course, there is Rush Limbaugh. I, 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 I just know that at some point, somebody, I know, Snurdly, will ask me to do a Rush Limbaugh impression. Which, that has gotten me the most feedback. People really, really, really like Rush Limbaugh. Not even just because people who are listeners to Rush Limbaugh, but also many liberal listeners who remember listening to Rush Limbaugh narrate their childhood effectively because their dad wouldn't let them listen to anything else in the truck. Then, of course, there's Alex Jones. You know, you know, nobody will let me on. I, I, I don't. My, my, my biggest platform is Parler. Alex Jones, and that's all right. But then, of course, there is Dan Carlin quote voice. I was catching up on podcasts last night, and you were talking with Heaton about your impressions. You did yourself a disservice by not mentioning. Your spot on Dan Carlin quote voice. End quote. What a legend. What a legend, Carlin. Big Jim writes, I'm going to predict that Ohio will not be called until Thursday. Polling is too tight. And if I was on staff on either campaign, this is where I would have a ton of lawyers ready to go. All right, so here's the deal. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are probably going to be the lagging states. Mostly because Ohio legally can process mail-in ballots, but not count them. So they can kind of sort them out in a way that will optimize what we know of those votes sooner on election day. All of the states allow counting before polls close. So we will know information. We will know information from all the states. 
on election night. The the difference is exactly how big is the early voting edge and then is there any gas left in the tank of votes that came in later into the situation. But if we're already pushing to the limits of registered voters a week before the election, then the idea of trailing votes making the difference is probably less likely. It's not like a lot of people are getting their votes in now. In fact, it's it's becoming, it's, it's slowing down. So we'll see. But I, I would say Ohio, we're probably going to know a fair amount about on election night. And I don't know if anybody's going to concede on election night. The only person who would concede on election night is Trump. Biden won't. Unless it is like, we realize that this massive early voting spike was like all Trump. And this is an absolute out of nowhere. How does Trump follow up the biggest upset of all time by a bigger upset? Because that's what this would be if Biden were to uh, uh, give up the ghost on election night. Matt writes, what's your take on the Supreme Court decision not to accept ballots that arrive after the election but are postmarked before? I live in Wisconsin, and this was something that made me angry in a nonpartisan way. The whole thing is being framed as a partisan victory for the right, but I don't believe it is. I live in Milwaukee, but grew up in the rural middle of the state. I voted absentee by dropping off my ballot in a collection box, one of many around the city. Easy enough. I can't imagine I would have such an easy time out in the country. And the rural vote is where Trump needs to turn them out big. Taking away the mail-in option seems like it'll put rural voters at a higher risk of contracting COVID. I worry about my old friends who still have to drive to town uh, to vote in person because they don't have as many options, including the drop-off ballot. I don't know what the actual electoral consequences will be, but I feel like accepting all ballots postmarked by Election Day is a bare minimum to offer accessible voting. Matt, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I think that we do ourselves a disservice in thinking about the legal decisions now as the, the reason why these things are happening. These are laws that are put into place. Like, so we need to argue about the mail-in vote laws and not necessarily the decisions by the Supreme Court, in my opinion. There are a lot of very bad, restrictive mail-in voting laws. It's part of the reason why I said early on that everybody who thinks that you can just turn on mail-in balloting is is kind of fooling themselves. I don't think you can. I think that there's a lot of ways that you can invalidate mail-in votes legally. There's a lot of ways you can not count mail-in votes legally. If we go up to the wire... And then we're arguing with the refs at the very end. That doesn't seem like a great way to win. And also, I I totally agree with your point that I don't think this is any kind of clear-cut partisan victory. Because the, the, the facts that we're seeing on the ground now are that less Democrats are voting by mail as we get closer to the election. So theoretically, more Republican votes would be would would be coming in. So we'll see. Thor writes, what happens if Biden wins but gets ill of COVID and dies before the oath of office? Does the presidential succession law allow a candidate elect who dies before the oath of office is taken in January to automatically pass it to the vice president? 
I know this is a crazy thought, but the pandemic is not under control. I'm assuming that Thor is not a pseudonym for Kamala Harris, but I believe that she would indeed take over. Uh, but geez, we're getting dark. We're getting dark. We are deep into backcountry if we're talking about that. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com is where you need to send your emails. Hold on to your butts. We're almost to the end. We are. We made it. I mean, whatever's left of us. <laughs> I shouldn't speak too soon. I think that is the folly. The the, the prayer of 2020 is uh, uh, just don't count on it. <laughs> that is 2020's motto. Don't count on it. Whatever it is. The Olympics, don't count on it. Uh, uh, this being over, don't count on it. I mean, I'm just saying, don't count on it. Your birthday, don't count on it. This year ending, I'm just saying, don't count on it. Here's one thing you can count on. Me bringing the goods. Obviously, we have a sea change happening on Tuesday. But if anything else breaks over the weekend, the first time you're going to hear about it is on our $3 feed on Monday. Then we're going to do a, my, my like mini, this is the story of the race. My grand thesis on 2020 will come out on Tuesday morning. We're live twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young Tuesday night for the election. And then Wednesday, we've got our first episode sent. And at that point, it is highly likely that we are in 24-hour news mode where things are going to break and then four hours later, there'll be a new story. If you want that kind of coverage delivered to your podcatcher of choice, then you got to sign up at the $3 level right now at TakePoliticsSeriously.com because that's going to be the place where I post all the emergency stuff and even if it's not an emergency, you just want my take on it, then the Monday episodes and the Thursday episodes come exclusively to the $3 feed on TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I want to thank everybody who supported us. You guys are the best. And uh, I hope to keep being able to bring you the high-quality content you have come to expect. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 level. Gets you two bonus episodes at least. Our guest today is a reporter and editor at large at CNN. You can find his writing at The Point with Chris Saliza, and you can find him on Twitter at Saliza CNN. Welcome to the show, Chris Saliza. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, now, this is obviously crunch time, so we very much appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on. <laughs> uh, uh, wh where would you describe the scale of 1 to 10 insanity of this cycle compared to cycles past? Yeah, you know in um, Spinal Tap, when they've got the, they've got the, um, 
the monitor and they said this one goes to 11 that that would be about what i would say on a scale of one to ten um the, look politics has gotten increasingly sort of wild and unpredictable uh in the last couple decades but from 2016 until today um it is actually let's say 2015 until today because when donald trump announced for president uh, I've not ever seen anything like this before. And, and I really do believe, uh, certainly if he doesn't win, uh, we won't see anything like this again for, for a while. Obviously if he wins, we'll, we'll see four more years like this. Uh, it's, it's hard to describe in that it doesn't fit into any sort of traditional Access. It's not as though you say, well, Donald Trump, he's really he's really been more conservative than past presidents or he's been more high profile. He's just been radically different in, yeah. in a way that it's like we're having a two dimensional conversation and he's in the third dimension. And I think that's the part that's hard to wrap your head around. Well, let me let me actually skip to a question that I was going to get to a little bit later on that uh, sure. from the last five years. And, and you've written a lot. Uh, uh, because of uh, the way that the style of the blog, uh, how what is the percentage that you would guesstimate of stories that are about or reactions to a Trump tweet over the last five? Oh, uh, great, great question. I would say and I've not I've not calculated this. Sure, so obviously, sure. this is a guess. I would say it's somewhere between 80 and 85 percent which I've been doing this for a long time, yeah. not necessarily for CNN 10 years before I worked 10 years at the post, but I've been writing a lot on the internet about politics for a long time. And I would say that, uh, let's call 2012 to 2016. Uh, you know, let's use that as a comparison. I, I would say probably 60 ish percent, 55 to 60% of what I wrote would be about <laughs> Obama, uh, yeah. during, during that period of time. Um, so it's a it's a it's a marked increase. Part of that is a function of his use of social media. That there's just there's just a, he tweets a lot of stuff. He also gives a lot of um, I don't want to say interviews, but he makes himself available to the press a lot. Um, but part of it is just because he says so many things that are so abnormal and and uh, people always abnormal has a pejorative connotation in 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 our society and i would just say i mean it as just different than normal just 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 some way different than we have always had and expected our presidents to act so in many days it is a challenge to fit in uh, the time to write about it. It's, it's never, I used to wake up in the morning and be worried about, you know, is, are we going to have enough stuff to write about? This is <laughs> yeah. a long, this is 15 years ago. Yeah. I don't ever have that worry anymore. Uh, with him, it's, you know, you have to sort of pick your journalistic spots much more. It, it, it's just very, very, very different. Well, then second part to that question, let's say he loses on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. If you were to guess the percentage of, uh, articles or posts that you will make about Trump's Twitter for the next five years, what would you put that Good percentage question. at? So I think that what is, this gets me to uh, something that I think is a, an interesting point. So a lot, one of the criticisms I hear a lot of the media, me particular, but also the media more generally is why do you cover his tweets? You know, what, what sure. we now know he, 
he, he says many things that are not that, that are demonstrably false in those tweets. And he repeats himself a lot. You know, you have to cover it all. And it, my response is, you don't have to cover it all, but you can't ignore it because he's the president of the United States. Right. Like like if the president of the United States came out and said these things that he tweets, we would cover it. Right. Um, and so his tweets move markets, they influence foreign leaders, they influence his own party. So we, we can't ignore it because we know it has an impact. That um, impact is is not zero if he loses. It really isn't. But it's not nearly what it was. I mean, I think that if he does not win, if he is no longer the president, he remains the largest figure in the Republican Party and the sort of prime mover in the Republican Party. Everything post-November 3rd, if he loses, will be about, are you still with the Trump version of the Republican Party, or are you in the, I don't want to call it the anti-Trump, but the move beyond Trump version of the Republican Party. So he will remain a major force. That said, he will not be president any longer if he loses, obviously, after January 20th. And I think that will reduce the sort of urgency and necessity of evaluating each one of his tweets to see whether we should write about it. I, I still think I will write about some of his tweets because I don't think he will. I don't think he will stop tweeting. I don't think he will stop. Oh, sweet Lord. No. no. Yeah. If anything, and, I, I would. And, I, yeah. Sorry. Finish. Go ahead. No, no. I, I just think so. And, and the thing about it is he won't be tweeting it into a void. He will be there. There will be impact of his tweets as vis-a-vis particularly what the Republican party will look like post him. Um, and so I think you have to consider that. I mean, I, I think he's possibly a bigger news story. He will be an ex president, which traditionally shut up and he will not, uh, yeah, he will that be, will not happen. He will be <laughs> in all likelihood, the uh, largest possible will he run in 2024, which you know very yep. well that, yep. that that's where we're going to all put our eyes after this, you know, for, for certain members of the media and political nerds in general on Wednesday, let's say we have a result on Tuesday night. We're all going to be thinking about, well, what happens in four years? And he's going to be a gigantic part of that. And, uh, and, and I will remind, I'll remind people, by the way, number one, he can absolutely do it. Grover Cleveland was president in non-consecutive terms. And number two, given Donald Trump's nature, which is to be a spotlight hog, right? To get yeah. as much attention as possible. Why would he rule out doing it? <laughs> right. I mean, oh, never. The way he would never get the most attention. He's not going to in a year. He's not going to be like, you know, and I've given it considerable thought. And I think it's time for the party to move on. He will milk it to the last possible minute because he that's in his his personal, political and business interest. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no, no. I think that you are you are totally correct. I, I don't think that there is any reason why he would rule out running again, specifically since he'd be yeah. a private citizen and the the business he was in before was keeping his name in the paper like and and now yep. he will have no uh no 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 shortage in his ability to do that uh, uh let's let's talk about something you you mentioned the idea of uh news value and and whether or not the the, the twitter is something that is worth it at least in the eyes of some of the critics mm-hmm. uh of, of yep. the media in general and you in specific uh obviously you have for those of you who are not familiar with with uh, chris's writing you have a very conversational style and uh, i think probably uh, the highest profile version of the kind of a blog revolution that sort of happened that as, as I came up in the, in the early odds, but that is conversational 
and it does lead to accusations of, of bias. Is there a line for you between mm-hmm. writing in that format and uh, uh, kind of putting up a signpost, specifically when you're at places like The Post or CNN that uh, you know, yeah. want to make sure that this isn't just some guy's opinion? Yep, absolutely. Look, uh, I think that you have to be, I, I, I'll speak for myself, I have to be cognizant of the line between opinion and analysis on a daily basis. So the, the way that I sort of look at it is, um, analysis is an attempt based on, I, I was a very uh, traditional reporter uh, for many years, uh, about half of the time at the Post, and then prior to that the, uh, at Roll Call, which is a small newspaper that covers Capitol Hill. Um, that was what I did. I was the, you know, trying to break news, um, trying to, you know, uh, be first and cover stuff. I sort of transitioned out of that, but I am mindful of that as I move forward in my career, which is, to me, analysis has, uh, from a purely business perspective, has more value um, because it potentially reaches everyone. Opinion, I think, you're particularly in this news environment, you're very likely to only reach the people who agree with you or who vehemently disagree with you, right? You're, you're, you're very unlikely to reach a, a broader audience. To me, analysis is about using my years of reporting, conversations with people who are in the political business, observation, and bringing it to bear on uh, a piece. Uh, opinion is sort of just me thinking of something and writing it. So I, I really do try to stay, stay anchored in reporting. To and, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean reporting in the way that I think people traditionally think of it, like quoting someone in a piece. It's more bouncing thoughts off of people, asking people what they see, just to confirm or not confirm that my thought on this you know, does this make sense? Does it not make sense? What are you seeing out there? Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think that um, the tone that I write into me is less uh, difficult, I think, in that regard than Trump himself. I've, uh, you know, in the last couple of years heard a lot of criticism of, well, since you went to CNN, you became more liberal, which I always remind people, yes, I worked at the Washington Post, but I was also a contributor for MSNBC. So, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know about that. Uh, I don't think it, I don't think in those terms, I know that frustrates people, but I don't really think in the liberal or conservative or Democrat or Republican terms, I think of it much more in the, look, this is the way that politics have been done. Donald Trump represents a radical change to that. Uh, His unwillingness, inability to tell the truth about a lot of things and to repeatedly uh, exaggerate, mislead, and at times lie that's not calling that out, in my opinion, is not a partisan thing. I, I remind people all the time, facts are not a partisan position. He is a challenge to journalism unlike we have ever seen before. And it's an asymmetric challenge because it's not just like, oh, well, he says the media is fake. No, it, it, it's really about how we respond to it. He, in 2016 in particular, but, but also since then, has taken advantage of the the what I would say is a little bit arcane notion of that re, real capital J journalism is about, well, they say this and the other people say that. And who's to know who's right? Well, you know, particularly with Trump, there's a lot of times when the facts say X and Trump says Y. Well, that's not an equal fight. If, yeah. if I say I can dunk a basketball on a 10 foot hoop and you watch me for an hour not be able to dunk a basketball on a 10 foot hoop, facts would seem to suggest that my aspirations to dunk basketball do not meet with 
the objective reality. And so I think we get labeled a lot of times as, well, you're much more, Trump has made you more partisan. I, I disagree with that. I would say that Trump has made journalism wake up a little bit to the fact that this is not a he said versus he said, and one side said this and, next, and the other side said that, and that's our job. Our job is to say, here's the context, here's the facts as we know, and what the, the, the politicians are saying. Sometimes those things agree. Oftentimes in the Trump era, they don't agree. And I think it's our job to say they don't agree. Let me ask you a question about the kind of like fact checking culture that has certainly exploded Mm -hmm. around uh, the the, the Trump administration, because my problem in general with with kind of where it's gone is that specifically in politics and, and you probably know this better than anybody, it is a game of misinformation on a large scale. You are making points specifically tailored to benefit you or specifically tailored yes. to to hurt yep. your opponent. And and the idea that this is the place that we would look to to police objective truth seems a, a little bit foolhardy. I agree with you on I mean look, who's ever seen a um an, a negative ad which have been running for a, since yeah. television existed and before that on radio. Shame on you, that, Chris Alyssa. Uh, right, yeah. right. Before that in pamphlets, you know, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, this has always been around. And what they do in negative ads is, look, uh, they, they parse to your point. They parse information to make whoever look bad. One of the most famous examples, John Kerry. I voted for it before I voted against it in 2004. Now, his point was he had voted for a procedural motion about uh, spending in Iraq prior to a final vote. Now, it's a dumb way to say it because no one understands that who isn't in the Senate or who has covered the Senate. And even if you have, it makes you look like a, a Washington swamp creature. Yeah. But the point was he, he he wasn't wrong. He wasn't he wasn't really trying to flip flop all that much. But when you take that one quote and you play it over and over again, he looks like the you know the the, the slickest, most flip floppy politician ever. So this has been going on. I mean, that's politics in yeah. a lot of ways. Politics is not about like, hey, let me give you the full context of this ten minute quote in a thirty second ad because that's not how it works. Um, I think that. The growth of the fact-checking industry, and I was part of it at the Post uh, in that Glenn Kessler, my former colleague, was one of the first people in that in that water uh, with the fact-checker blog. And, you know, they keep a running count on Trump. Um, I think – and then obviously my colleague Daniel Dale now has gone from, you know – uh, Viral, he's, yeah. He's you know, well over a million Twitter followers, I and mean, he, is, he is a phenomenon of election. Um, I think that – I view a lot of it as good in that I think it, it says that we can take a position. We can say, here are the objective facts. Here is what the president, here is a judgment. I think to your point, though, there is no question that Donald Trump did not invent uh, on the economy, for example, pulling the few numbers that make it look best for him. He, he did not invent this. No, that, that is, that is, that is time, de rigueur. I, he, he, he might, he might do it more often. He might repeat it more. Yeah. He might find new ways to say it, but that's fairly standard operating procedure. Yes, it absolutely is. I, I think that, um, in some, my thought on it is he has made his bed and has 
tying it now in that most politicians, when directly countered, when it when it shows the facts do not back it up, most politicians in the past, not all, but most politicians in the past would back off from it. They would hedge language so that they would um, be uh, uh, be able to avoid the scorn of the fact checkers because they cared about it. He doesn't care uh, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I think he. Uh, I think he revels in the fact that these fact checkers, these quote unquote, you know, lamestream media fact checkers disagree with him. So I, I think that the coverage of him vis-a-vis fact checking is is bigger because he made it bigger. But I do I do not disagree with you that politics is not politics and politicians are not in the business of telling you every single fact some of which are good for them and some of which are bad. They are in the business of spinning facts to uh, work for them. They are not usually, though, in the business of making up facts. And, I mean, making up quote-unquote facts, because if it's made up, it's not a fact. And I think he is more in that. Yeah, it just, Sorry, I don't know. So, so, sometimes it, it just seems to me like we're you know, going for 300 words on whether or not somebody could indeed out-pizza the hut. And, and we will... Yes, and we will, I agree. We will, and, we will and, figure and, that out. And, and look, I think... Well, and I think like almost everything you see in politics and political journalism and in life, I think we didn't do enough fact-checking before. Uh, we've probably swung to doing maybe too much, N- not necessarily too much, but not uh, on the right things. And it'll end up somewhere in the middle, which I think will hopefully be the right thing. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, before, and for those of you who are not uh, familiar with Chris's work, you were at The Post for a very long time, and then you went to CNN. Those are two very yeah. different platforms in terms of their reputations. And while I don't think your writing has particularly changed, at least to my eye, all that much, uh, certainly as a an irreverent writer at times, I would imagine that that you know, the, the most irreverent that The Post gets might be a, ho- a holiday party. The most irreverent that CNN gets is Don Lemon shotgunning a beer on New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh, uh, have, has, has that been something that you've been cognizant of? Uh, or do you have more of a leash to get a little sillier or, or more playful because CNN is just a different platform? Honestly, I haven't. I mean, the reason that I made the move was I uh, I had been at the Post for a long time. I, I loved it there, but I wanted to do more um, visual stuff. I wanted to do more digital stuff, you know, uh, online, digital video, TV, and obviously CNN is, is better for that. I didn't do it really to to sort of have more of a leash. I will be honest with you, Marty Bear, my, my two editors uh, there uh, – were incredible. First one is Marcus Broccoli. Actually, Len Downey was the editor when I first started. He's the best. He loves politics. Great guy, Ohio State guy. Uh, he was the editor, then Marcus Broccoli, then Marty Barron. And I will tell you, like, they were all incredibly encouraging of sort of being more creative, being writing more conversationally, because I mean, I always try to tell younger people this, like that wasn't a thing that we did in journalism, even no. 10, 15 years ago, it was very like the idea that you would ever use the word I in a piece of journalism or you or make a joke like that wasn't yeah. a thing. Um, they were very encouraging in that regard. Like I know the post reputation is kind of the staid, like establishment Washington creation, but like 
Marty and Marcus, uh, and, and even Len, who, who I wasn't with all that long, but I mean, I was younger at that point, but as I got older and sort of wanted to take more risks, both of them were very supportive of that. Now I will tell you the person who recruited CNN was Jeff Zucker, the president of, of CNN. And like, he is someone who loves politics. He is someone who I think understands the necessity to push boundaries in journalism a little bit. I mean, the truth of the matter is journalism, whether it's TV journalism, print journalism, digital journalism, uh, any form of it, newsletters, it's all going through a, a radical transformation. Now, I, I think that it happened in newspapers when I was at the Post. I think it's happening in broadcast cable, uh, cable and broadcast now. Um, but the way in which we have always done things isn't necessarily the best way to do them going forward from both an editorial and business standpoint. And I think Jeff understands that innately. I mean, I think he's associated with TV because he was, you know, the president of NBC News, the president of NBC, and, you know, he's, he's a, he's a TV guy. Interaction with him, uh, on a, I don't know, daily basis, but certainly a weekly basis. He more than anyone encourages me to, to take risks. I mean, that I wouldn't have come. I felt as though I would be or that I'd be totally unconstrained. Look, I need, I have an editor. Her name is Lima. She is, a, she is, uh, I've known her for years and years and years. She reels in uh, a number of my more um, out there ideas. Sometimes she goes with them. Sometimes she doesn't. But I view my role, and I view my role at the Post like this, and I view my role at CNN like as well as to push the boundaries a little bit, to say, well, we've always done things this way, but what if we tried it this way? I understand. I believe we need that straight news component, that news gathering. We had it at the Post. Obviously, we have it at CNN. But to me, I think my job is to say, well, what if we took this at it? What if we took this angle? Sometimes that makes people uncomfortable. Uh, God knows it makes people angry. Uh, not not at CNN, but but in the wider world. I mean, you know, uh, I've my wife to never ever look at my Twitter feed. You know, just to, not 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 what I tweet, but the comments. But yeah, the ad replies. Yeah, see, see what's out there. You know, I got two youngest. You know, I got uh, I have an eleven year old and an eight year old. The eleven year old is sort of studying politics now. His his friends know what I do for a living, and you know he, he, that part of it is is hard. But that's also part of my job. You know, I think part of my job is to push boundaries, is maybe to make people both internally and externally a little bit like, is this the right take on stuff? I'm not doing it to be a provocateur. Like, I don't view that as my job. But I also think we know journalism is changing and and evolving. We know it has to change and evolve. I want to be part of that rather than someone on the sidelines being like, You know, and I, and I yeah. think that's why I was hired at both of those places. And so that I, I and I know I'm doing what Jeff sort of envisioned for me to do. So I feel OK about it. Let me ask you this question, because the audience uh, loves it when I get into pedantic journalism conversation. But I, I think it would be better coming from your <laughs> mouth than it would be from mine, because I've been out of organized journalism for a while now. Uh, can you just confirm something that I've said repeatedly about the uh, uh, not unlike in, in the Tolkien universe of elves and dwarves, the, the, the hard coded rivalry that there is between print journalists and television journalists as somebody who has crossed oh, the threshold? My gosh. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's uh, yes. Uh, so that has always been I don't know if I can say time immemorial, but for as long <laughs> as I've ever been involved. Yes. So, for as long as television uh, existed, journal- and then I'm sure that the newspaper yeah. people were pissed about the Telegraph. Right. So I have, <laughs> I have a, I have a caveat at the end of this that I will point. But yes, 
certainly when I got into journalism and for many of my first years in it, the print people view the TV people as overly facile, uh, pretty boys uh, who don't really know this stuff. The, the, it doesn't totally go the other way, uh, which I think may be, may be what makes the print people crazy, that the TV people oh, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't necessarily even consider They don't them. even care. Uh, no, yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like right, that, that, exactly. that, that, uh, that Mad Men meme of uh, uh, the guy saying, I feel sorry for you, and Don Draper saying back, I don't think of you at all. And I think it is a very much a one-sided exactly. rivalry. Exactly. The opposite, the opposite of love is not hated, it is indifferent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I, now, my caveat. You were, by the way, you're 100% right. That is absolutely been a working dynamic my entire time, my entire life in, in journalism. Now, the change is this. You have seen, and I, I did this. I certainly wasn't the first. There's so many people at first now who do this. There are, there's a lot of hybridization now of journalism. That is, it used to be that you were either a TV reporter or, or analyst or a print reporter and analyst, and never the twain shall meet. There's a lot more crossover now of people who are not, who are, who work for the post and who also have MSNBC contributor gigs or who work for CNN, but also write for other magazines or other. So I think the, the, we've seen a lot more of that, which hopefully breaks down that, you know, like most stereotypes, it's not totally based in reality. So breaks that down a little bit more, but you're a hundred percent right. I mean, Chris Saliza starting 1998 in journalism, that was the most entrenched reality. It was, you were either, it was like Yankees or Red Sox. Yeah. You were either in one, you didn't, no one was like, oh, I actually root for them both. Like, that's not a thing. You're either one or the other. Even through journalism school, they're just two totally different tracks. Like it totally would be, different. it would yes. like, I don't know if I ever met somebody that was going to be in television. And and now like I, I watch people that are on TV now. And if they're not journalism people and not uh, newspaper people that then went into television, I, I never met them. And we probably went to school at the exact same time. Uh, uh, let me, let me you know, swing although it. Increasingly just one other, one other thing I yeah. know increasingly like just being a TV person or just being a writer you better be one of the best TV people yeah. or one of the best writers if you're only going to do that one thing. When I talk to younger people who are interested in journalism, I tell them, learn how to shoot uh, video and upload it. Learn how to talk on camera. Learn how to read off a prompter. Learn how to transcribe. Learn how to write. You know, you, you need to have as many, given where journalism is, right, you need to have as many uh, traits and uh, skill sets as humanly possible because it, yes, there's, you can be, if, if you're really good on TV, you can be Wolf Blitzer and not need to write a ton, but there's one Wolf Blitzer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or if you really can write, you can be David Marinette post, but there's one David Marinette. And that, I mean, you know, like you, you better be the top of your perfection if you're really going to go deep and do the one thing. And and besides, we're about 15 years into them letting writers on television, which means you don't need a gigantic Easter Island head to be on there. You know, you can actually look like a normal person and, and be on TV. <laughs> let me uh, let me let me swing it back to the uh, election real quick before I let you go. Uh, uh, we, I asked you a question about what happens if Trump loses, whether or not we are still considering his uh, Twitter feed to be a news source. Let's swing to the possibility that he wins from your news value perspective 
Is mm-hmm. this something where we have to ask serious questions about how much we're baking in uh, polling into how we make the narrative yes. of the news? Yes. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think it's more so than 2016. I always tell people some of the state polling was off in 2016. The national polling was largely right. It had her winning, Hillary winning by two and a half to three points on average. And she won the popular vote by 2.8 million uh, votes. Um that is not the case here. The national polling has Joe Biden winning by somewhere between eight and 10 points. Uh, if he lost based on that, we would need, I mean, look, I think we saw something of a reexamination of sort of our assumptions, whether it's polling or how we cover things or what voters we talk to in uh, after the 2016 election. We would need to have a wholesale conversation about the way in which the, we cover the country, the way in which we cover politics, the way in which we poll the country if he wins in this one, because he is not, this is not a replica of 2016 for a lot of reasons. Some, the biggest one is he's the incumbent president, not yeah. a radical outsider. But the other one is just from a data perspective, he's behind in more swing states and nationally by far more than he was in 2016 at this point. It, it, it would be, a much more significant upset in terms of what the polling shows for him to win this time than to win in 2016. Um, and, and if that happened, therefore, we would need, I think, to have a, uh, a wholesale reexamination. I think we had a partial reexamination of, of how we got to where we were after 2016, but then Trump hit the ground running and tweeting so fast that that it's impossible to, to do that kind of, soup to nuts examination of how you do things while you're trying to cover it as an unlike any other. Um, we would have to do that. I, I think as an industry and as a country, honestly, I think sort of our assumptions of what a majority of the country cares about values and wants in a president and in leadership in government, I think it was shaken in, in 2016 after the Trump victory. I think people said, well, wait a minute, maybe we people in journalism, particularly myself, I know, maybe we got this wrong about what people look for in a president and a leader. If it happened in 2020, given where the data is, I, I think that we would have to say, we do not know what the country wants, period. We, we need to make wholesale changes, meaningful changes in the way that we poll, in the way that we cover uh, the country, because what we are doing is not giving a representative sample of how the country thinks about its leadership and, ex- has, and what its expectations are from its leaders. It, it, that, that, to me, to, it would have to happen. Well, that seems like a great place to leave it. Chris Saliza, of course, reporter and editor-at-large uh, for CNN Politics. You can find his writing there and on Twitter, at Saliza CNN. Uh, thank you so, so much for uh, taking time out of your day, sp- specifically now, oh, to do the show. Of course, man. I love to, uh, The only thing I may like to talk more about than politics is media and politics. So thank you for indulging me and letting well, me I'll do tell you, don't, don't, don't say that too loud. We'll have to pull you back uh, uh, at some point down the road. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. The next time I speak to you on this feed, we very well will know the results of this election. Could happen. I know everybody wants to say this is going to take forever. Might not. Might not. If you believe that Biden is that guy then uh, it might be wrapped on election night. Or at least 
effectively be wrapped on election night. Now, if you want all the last minute analysis on Monday morning, well, there's only one place you need to go, and that's takepoliticsseriously.com. Get on that $3 level. If there was ever a week, if there was ever a week where it's worth it, oh, it's this week. Or maybe you can get on our Titanic $10 tier. Be a part of this historic episode or episodes by having your name read at the end, including, and and, and I have to... Uh, to offer a, a little bit of a apology here because one of our Titanic $10 tier members is Lord Generic Frenchman. And apparently, last week, I, I got a little careless in my read and it sounded like I said Benny the Frenchman. While I would love to know somebody named Benny the Frenchman, that is not Lord Generic Frenchman, and I sincerely regret the error. So let's begin. Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G, Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Zombie, Doc, Gazer, Beam, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory Pie App, Crooky McCrookface, Justin Ryan Egan, D-Laser, Matt, who called from Labor and Delivery, Starfleet for Biden, Justin uh, with Magnolia Delta Credit Card Processing, Katie, vote for Joe Biden 2020. Evan, Rob, vote for Gloria Young 2020. Vote for Trump 2020. Martin, Government Unfiltered. Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show. Adam, Joe, David, vote Gloria Young or Bust. DL, Steven, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolfbrand, Chili Scoop, Dustin, David, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, the Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. Thank you for making this happen, guys and gals. And everything in between. Uh, that's it. The Young American at gmail.com. Make sure you get on our Twitch stream, twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young on election night. Just remember it by downloading the app. Download the Twitch app right now. Search for Justin R. Young and follow it and set it to alerts. And it'll ping you right when we go live. We're rocking and rolling until as late as we can on election night. At PX3 Tweets on Twitter. New new uh, Twitter thing. It's just for all things politics, politics, politics. Including the free political newsletter. Including the live stream. Including the podcast. Till next time, throw pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more they're talking about politics, but this is the only show that talks about how three Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this broker. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.